0: This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a sermon from Erwin Entz. Erwin Entz serves as a pastor of Grace D.C. Presbyterian Church and director of the Grace D.C. Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2017 at the PCA General Assembly in Greensboro, North Carolina.
1: I'm back. (laughs) Figured if I change my clothes, you might not recognize me. (laughs) I am I'm awed by the humble privilege that I have tonight to to break the bread of life with you. To open the scriptures and to hear what thus says The Lord. I am grateful to our host Presbytery for the invitation. I am so thankful for the sweet, sweet worship that we have been able to participate in in these songs of Zion that help us to worship our God and our King. And now, you know, usually I at least ask when I'm asked to preach I at least ask the question how much time do I have? But I figure I got at least half as much time as I spent right down there talking about that study committee report. to turn your attention to the book of the Old Testament prophet Hosea chapter 1 the end of that chapter in verse number 10 and reading just three verses to the first verse of chapter 2 and I want to talk to you as it says in your bulletin I want to talk to you tonight on the subject. A change is going to come. A change is going to come. And if you are like me, when you hear a sermon title as a pastor or a church member, particularly from somebody that you may have never heard preached before, I'm always trying to think, okay, what's the angle? Where is he going with this? So let me tell you where I'm going. Let me tell you at the front end, The point of everything I want to say to you tonight, it is this, that in Jesus Christ we see the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem his people, uniting them under one Lord and reversing their condition. That in Jesus Christ we see the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem his people uniting them under one Lord and reversing their condition look with me at God's word and the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the seashore which cannot be measured and cannot be counted and it shall be in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people. It will be said to them, Children of the Living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel will gather or will be gathered together, and they will set for themselves one head, and they will. Spring up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, compassion. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name belongs the glory. We are gathered here tonight, Lord, asking that you would be pleased to speak your truth into our hearing and that it would find deep, deep resonance in our hearts. I ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to take my weak and unworthy efforts in your word and use them for the blessing of your people. Lord, if I say anything tonight that is... and that is not in accord with your word, would you be merciful and allow it to fall on, ear, on deaf ears? But if I proclaim the truth of the living God, do not let us leave here without heeding it and without being changed. All to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, Sam Cooke is called by some the most important soul singer in history. Uh, He is, in fact, credited by many as being the founder and creator of soul music. And by 1963, Sam Cooke was already a, a star, and in May of that year, he was on tour in this state, the state of North Carolina, and after performing in Durham, he had opportunity to sit and talk with, uh, some, some local people who had participated in sit-in demonstrations in the area. Not long after that, not long after that tour, Sam Cook, uh, suffered the kind of, of tragedy that, that can make a parent lose His or her mind. His 18 month old son drowned in a swimming pool. The struggle of the civil rights era in this land and his own personal story of tragedy are, are, are some of the things that prompted him to write the song, A Change is Gonna Come. That song, in many ways, has come to symbolize. The civil rights era in its entirety. You know the song, at least some of you do, it starts with these words I was born by the river in a little tent, and just like the river I've been running ever since. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. This message of hope in the midst of hardship, it spoke powerfully to that, to that era. If you've seen uh, the 1992 movie X by Spike Lee uh, about the life of Malcolm X, the scene when Denzel Washington as Malcolm X is taking that fatal drive to his hotel from the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, where he would be shot to death, as he is driving in the car. And if you're familiar with Spike's cinematography, you know as he focuses in just on the the, the character, there are no words that are being spoken, but what is. Going on, the song that is playing in the background is a change is gonna come. In the movie Talk to Me, about 1960 DC radio talk show host Petey Green. There is a scene in that movie that shows the riots that took place in the District of Columbia after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. And in that scene, fires are burning, There is sirens blaring, there's chaos all around, and Petey is standing in the middle of it, distressed, as he looks around at what's going on around him, and the song that is playing in the background of the scene in that movie is a change is going to come. The irony of using that song in, in this way is that in the midst of the situation, there's no reason to believe that a change is coming. In Cook's personal life, his baby boy is dead. He's talking to people who are being attacked for sitting at lunch counters. In the movie X, the song is playing as a man is driving to his death. And Talk to Me, the city is burning and there's chaos all around. And yet the message that the producer wants us to hear is a change is going to come. And I tell you something. Uh, this year, this very year, what we commemorate is the 500 year anniversary of the launching of the Protestant Reformation in 1517 when Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And if I was making a movie about that scene, As he has the hammer in his hand, the song that would be playing in the background was, a change is going to come. Cities weren't burning. But there was chaos when it came to fidelity to God's word. Indeed, to reform something requires a change coming. It requires some sort of reversal. And what everybody knew, whether it was the reformers we celebrate in the 16th and 17th centuries or those who were pursuing civil rights in the 1950s and 60s, is that the coming of change was beyond them. Change coming required something or someone beyond themselves. The situation was bleak and they didn't have the power in or of themselves to bring about that change. And that message mirrors these three verses in the book of the prophet Hosea. If you're familiar with the story, most of Hosea chapter 1 reads like a horror movie. Hosea the prophet is commanded by God to marry a prostitute who had children from her life of prostitution because the land had committed great prostitution in going away from the Lord. And then he and his wife Gomer have three children. The births and the names of the children sent the message of impending doom to the nation of Israel. The tension built and the message became increasingly troubling with the birth of each child. With the birth of their first son, Jezreel, there would be a loss of peace and protection for the nation. With the birth of their daughter, lo Ruhama, the message for the people was that their Lord, who is merciful and compassionate, would no longer have compassion on his people. And then the final break would come with the birth of the third child, the son, Lo-Ami. They would no longer be the Lord's people and he would no longer be theirs. This prosperous nation would begin to suffer decline. It would come to an end when uh, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, besieged Samaria and Israel for three years and captured it and carried the Israelites away to exile in Assyria. And in Second Kings chapter 17, we, we find out why that happened. The The Bible says that the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger and they served idols. They despised the Lord's statutes and his covenant. And it says, And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And so exactly what Hosea prophesied to happen, happened, and yet in the middle of the horror as the nation runs headlong into its demise, God sends a message of hope through Hosea saying a change is going to come. Just like Sam Cooke's song, that message would have been unbelievable and would have seemed out of place and as, as Samaria would, was being overrun by the Assyrians. But this change that God promises is rock solid because it was not going to happen by Israel's efforts. God was going to do it all by himself, all by his lonesome. And Hosea describes how the Lord is gonna do it in, in three ways. I mean, this is just a side note. I'm, I'm a three point preacher. And as God would have it, we got three verses. We're gonna talk about three things redemption, reunion, and reversal. Redemption, reunion, and reversal. Hosea's son, Law Ami, is born, and the Lord says to Israel in verse 9. Of this first chapter, you're not mine and I'm not yours. We are done. And then in the space of one verse, there's a radical shift from doom to hope. The Lord promises to redeem. He promises redemption. And you know to redeem is to, to reacquire something, to, to get back something that once belonged to you but doesn't belong to you anymore, but you want it back and you are willing to pay for it. The Lord says... Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the seashore that cannot be measured, cannot be counted. And and it will be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, children of the living God. Notice this with me. It says in in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Well, who said that to them? Who called them that? You, it's the Lord, right? And, and as we just saw in 2 Kings 17, they had done everything in their power to break their covenant with the Lord. They had done everything they could to force his hand into making the declaration, you are not my people. They had acted as if their God was a joke. We know what the Lord commanded, but we want to do our own thing. We want to live how we want. They They had an arrogance that said, we have the Lord's promise, so we're good to go. All we need is the Lord's promise we can do whatever we want. His commentary on this verse. John Calvin says of Israel, he says, Arrogating to themselves the title of church, they concluded that it would be impossible for them to perish, for God would not be untrue to his promise. Why God has promised that his church shall be forever, we are his church, then we are safe, for God cannot deny himself. In what they took as granted, they were deceived, for though they usurped the title of church, they were yet alienated from God. The Lord's patience runs out and he says, I'm going to give you what you want. You want to live like you have no relationship with me? I'm going to declare that you don't have a relationship with me. And then comes this message of redemption. Hosea says, yes, the Lord is going to be true to his promise, but it's not going to be because the people have gotten themselves together. They weren't asking for redemption. Hosea doesn't come and say here, you know, the people are going to recognize their sin and their rebellion. They're going to cry out to the Lord and the Lord is going to hear their cry. He he doesn't say that there's going to be repentance and then redemption. Repentance, we know, turning away from sin is a necessary part of redemption, but it's not as though Hosea forgot to include it. His focus here is on what God will do. If anybody is going to be called a child of the living God, God has got to make them a child. This promise change that's going to come, this promise redemption is only, only valid because God is the only one who can make it happen. No mistake about it, brothers and sisters. The redemption that Hosea is talking about here is nothing other than redemption in Jesus Christ. I know we don't see Jesus' name mentioned anywhere here, but listen, this promise wasn't just for 750 or 722 B.C. His promise is for us here now today for redemption to take place. That is for people to have the title children of the living God. God was going to have to make it happen. And so in his mercy, he brings it about by bringing us to the place of faith in Jesus Christ. And I love how God's word ties completely together. In the ninth chapter of Romans, when the Apostle Paul is speaking in anguish concerning the unbelief of his brothers according to the flesh, the the Israelites, he's dealing with the question, right, of whether or not their unbelief indicates that the promises of God had failed. And Paul says in Romans 9 verses 6 to 7, but it's not as though the word of God is failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then later on in the chapter, he says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews but only but also from the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea those who are not my people I will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call my beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people they will be called sons of the living God what God says through Hosea makes a straight line to Jesus Christ It is a picture of God's saving grace. What does this promised redemption look like? Brothers and sisters, this promised redemption looks like the family reunion of all family reunions. Now in my family, as I was growing up, we had family reunions on both sides of the family, mother's side and the father's side. Now on my mother's side, we... We would have family reunions more frequently because it wasn't much of a, an expense for us to, to make it. Uh, my mother is from Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and we grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, my, my mother and her siblings, they migrated up to New York City, and so we just drive at 12 hours from, from, uh, from Brooklyn to Wilmington uh, almost every year and have family reunion. But on my father's side, it was another matter. My father was from Trinidad, that's in the Caribbean, that's in the real South, that's like South-South. And his generation began the dispersion process. Some of some of his siblings and that generation moved to New York. Some moved uh, just to another island, Island of Barbados. Some moved to Montreal. Some moved to Toronto. Some moved to England. Some moved to France. We were all over the place. So it's a lot harder to get everybody's schedule coordinated, money saved, time off from work, so that we can all gather in Trinidad. But when we do, it is very special. And as special as that is, it actually pales in comparison to the family reunion that the Lord promises in verse number 11. Hosea gives us a picture of what this reunion looks like. He says, the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one head." Generations before the kingdom had split, 10 of the tribes went north, uh, were in the north and were Israel, and two tribes in the south were were Judah, and and this promised reunion, it would have seemed unbelievable coming out of Hosea's mouth. Why? Why is that? like when we plan a family reunion on my father's side, it's difficult to, to, to schedule and it takes a couple of years. Uh, we got to do it ahead of time because of all of the coordination challenges. But we do it because we want to do it. We do it because we want to see each other. Facebook and Skype and FaceTime are not enough. We want to be in one another's presence. But Judah and Israel were not trying to reunite. They were quite happy with the status quo. God says this change is going to come, but just like they weren't asking for redemption, they weren't asking for reunion either. For Hosea, the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, was a disgrace. By the time Hosea's ministry began, it had been 200 years since the kingdom had divided. And there was no clamor among the kings of Israel or the kings of of Judah to say, this ain't right. We're supposed to be the Lord's people. We need to get back together and demonstrate our unity in the Lord for all the other nations to see. The history was one of strife and disunity, not unity. Nobody was saying, let's plan a reunion. The Lord says... Where there is nothing but strife and animosity, where there is nothing but disunity and discord, I'm going to replace it with unity. I'm going to replace it with unity, but not just any unity. The people will be so united in spirit that they will appoint for themselves one head to rule over them. Y'all know who this one head is, don't you? None other than the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the center of this hope. The harsh judgment of chapter 1 is followed by this promise that God will bring all of his people together under one ruler, Jesus Christ. And do you find it interesting that Hosea says that these united people will appoint a leader for themselves? They will appoint for themselves, it says, one head to rule over them. Now, you know, I try to do my Hebrew, Greek translation. I'm trying to figure. I'm like, is there another way to translate that? What do you mean, appoint for themselves one head? Shouldn't we have be reading? Shouldn't we be reading that God is going to point a head to rule over them when He gathers them together? Like, what's, what's going on? God's not saying here. Right? We don't see how Hosea said, God's going to give them a leader. He says they'll appoint one for themselves. Let me quote from Calvin again because I think he's right on this. Did I get any points for that? (laughs) He says, "It, it seems indeed strange that what is peculiar to God should be transferred to man. That is to appoint a king. But the prophet has by this expression characterized the obedience of faith. For it is not enough that Christ should be given as a king and set over men unless they also embrace him as their king and with reverence receive him. We now learn that when we believe the gospel, we choose Christ for our king as it were by a voluntary consent. He says, your your earthly happiness is unhappiness before God. You're now secure, but your safety depends on another thing, even on this, that you be one body under one head, for you must be miserable except God rule over you. This promise goes far beyond ethnic Israel. It's connected to this number of redeemed people who are like the sand of the sea uh, that can't be measured or, or numbered. It is a picture of a reunion that only God can create. Way that God rules Over us, family is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you that a verse like this, it challenges us because even today, after 2,000 years of Christ reigning over his church in power, we don't always see this picture of unity that comes as an outworking of our union with our Savior. Israel was divided. Israel and Judah were divided and not seeking a a reunion. The Lord says he's going to make reunion happen in such a way that then the people's hearts are turned toward him. Their hearts will, by necessity, be turned toward one another. John Frame in his book. Evangelical Reunion says God intends to remove the effects of sin from his church and therefore also to remove the disunity which is always the result of sin. So if we will forward to the reunification of God's people, we should be seeking it here and now. The truth is that the divides the divides that exist in the world still exist in the church. Whatever they are, race or ethnicity or class, whatever those divisions are. A quote from John Frame's book, Evangelical Reunion, he's talking about denominational reunions. Can I talk about us for just a minute? Can I meddle for just a second? Just a second.
0: Is someone you know interested in seminary education? Are you interested in the future of confessional Presbyterianism in North America and around the world? If you answered yes to either of these questions, then consider Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Since 1987, Greenville Seminary has been preparing preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations. Though most students and graduates are in the Presbyterian Church in America— Many of them come from sister denominations and other churches around the world. The seminary's faculty is committed to the doctrinal standards of the PCA and to Christ exalting, biblically faithful, and wholeheartedly applicatory preaching. For more information, please visit gpts.edu or send an email to infogpts.edu. You can call the seminary at 864-322-2717 or visit the main campus in Taylors, South Carolina. May the Lord bless you and may he bless his bride, and particularly that expression of his church we affectionately call the Presbyterian Church in America.
1: Several years, myself along with a handful of other African-American pastors, we would go to this thing called the Twin Lakes Fellowship in Jackson, Mississippi. It's ministerial fraternal. Uh, Me and about three or four other brothers. uh, Let me sorry, four other bruhs. So I got to make it B R U H S. So when I say brothers, I'm talking about every male. When I say bruhs, I'm talking about my youth. We go to Jackson by invitation. And, you know, now I don't know what Lake Duncan is uh, out here, but I, I meant to tell you this. Like, you know, we would also say in front of each other with each other because we'd be down there, you know, in the woods retreat center in Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> and all of us would be in the same cabin and then no locks on the door. And we'd be like, you know, they could take out like 10% of the bras in the PCA in one fell swoop. we just going to have to trust the Lord. But let me tell you something that would happen to me. Every year that I went, without fail, at some point over those couple of days, as I sat under the ministry of the Word of God the Spirit of God would grab me and would move me to tears. And why would that happen? It would happen to me because as I was being ministered to by the, by the man of God proclaiming the Word of God, I would inevitably be reminded of my sonship. I would be reminded of my adoption, of the fact that I am accepted in the Beloved. I would be moved to repent in tears of my striving to build my value as a child of God on the success of my ministry I would be reminded that the strength of my preaching or the number of the visitations that I do is not what qualifies me to stand before God I would be reminded that it is nothing but the blood of Christ but what would also happen and what would grieve me is that I knew there were brothers in that room who I knew were skeptical of some of my dear friends because they were in a different camp And I had some dear friends in a different camp in the denomination who would say, why are you going to Twin Lakes Fellowship? Now, maybe it's because I'm an uber minority in this denomination. But I decided early on that I was not going to base my, uh, my life in the PCA or my affiliation to a camp. Now, watch. I didn't say I don't have an affiliation. I didn't say I don't have a camp. What I said was I'm not going to base my life in the denomination on affiliation to a camp. I'm not talking about not having preferences. I'm not talking about denying the fact that each of us are going to be drawn into certain affiliations because of theological nuances. Let me give you, this is an aside too. I'm intentionally using the word camp and I'm not saying uh, conservatives and progressives or confessionalists and whatever. I'm not using those labels because here's the truth of the matter. In the eyes of the world, we all conservatives. (laughs) Anybody, anybody, any church that says and his ministers say that the only thing that is able to bind the conscience of men and women is the word of God and nothing else is going to be disdained by the word so I'm saying camps. I'm not using them labels you can use them if you want to but I'm talking about the fact that camp affiliation cannot be the basis for your life in this church The basis must be our union with Jesus Christ, which necessitates our reunion with one another. My favorite chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith has become chapter number 26 of the communion of saints. Have you read that chapter lately? Well, if you haven't, let me help you out. I'm going to read those first two paragraphs of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26. The divine said, all saints who are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, suffering, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love. They participate in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to perform those public and private duties which lead to their mutual good both inwardly and outwardly. It is the duty of professing saints to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as help them to edify one another. As God affords opportunity, I love this line, As God affords opportunity, this communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Being united together in love, we participate in each other's gifts and graces. And I love what what George Hendry says about this chapter of the confession in his book from a generation ago titled Westminster Confession for Today. He explains that this love that the confession is talking about is not based on a mutual attraction. This love is not based on a mutual attraction. Rather, he says, it is a love that overcomes divisions and reconciles contraries, bringing into communion those who have nothing in common except the fact that Christ gave himself for them. Here's the deal. This is one of the ways we can know that the Lord is at work in our midst. We won't see the complete fulfillment of this perfect reunion and unity and all until all sin is done away with. We won't see it until the glory of heaven. But we know that our Savior is at work when we know that we want it. When we know that we want that union and that unity and that reunion at work in our midst. When we long for it. When it starts to exude from our life as a people of God, as a branch of his church. See, unlike Israel and Judah, when we have Christ, we're not content with strife and disunity. Because we heard Paul say in Ephesians 2 that Christ is our peace. That he has made Jew and Gentile one, breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And when Paul urges us in Ephesians 4 to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, we want to do it. Why? Because we know that there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and in all and through all. The Savior's rule over us is what changes our hearts to desire to see the promised reunion begin to take place in real space and real time among us. Reunion across divisions of race and class and gender and generations. We know that the the, the family reunion began at the cross of Christ, and the change came, and it's still coming. Included in this change, and I'm done. I'm almost done. That's not a black church. Almost done. I'm almost done for real. (laughs) Included in this change is redemption, reunion, and lastly reversal. Our text is the first of six messages of hope in. prophet's book and each hope message speaks to a reversing of the condition it is this first one the Lord reverses the names of each of Hosea's children he says they will spring up from the earth for great will be the day of Jezreel the first child say to your brothers my people and to your sisters compassion Jezreel's birth, uh, had signified the end of the nation's peace and protection. The valley of Jezreel where battles were fought is the place where the Lord had said in verse five of the first chapter that he would break Israel's bow. And now he says that on the day of Jezreel, that the day of Jezreel will be great. Then the, the other two sign children are, are dressed in verse one of chapter two and told to talk to another group of children, their brothers and sisters and say, literally, my people, literally, Compassion. This is a picture of a spiritual exodus. The Lord says they will go up; they will spring up from 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 the uh, the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel here is figurative. The the name literally means God's souls. And when the boy was born in verse number four, the significance of his name was not its literal meaning. It was the the place Jezreel that had become synonymous with bloodshed. But here now in the promise, the significance of the reversal is based on the meaning of his name, God's souls. So the message in verse number 11 is they'll spring up from the earth for great will be the day of Jezreels." In other words, the number, number of God's children will be uncountable for multitude. They are people who were dead, but will come to life sprouting from the earth because God has sown them. The message to Israel was not you going to get your act together. The message is God promises resurrection life. To come up out of the earth, one writer put it, implies resurrection in which to redeem, break out of the subterranean tomb. Why will this happen? Because of the promise in verse 1 of chapter 2, those who are not my people will become my people. Those who had not received mercy will receive mercy. The change Hosea is talking about is resurrection and redemption, life in Jesus Christ. We know that because that's exactly what Peter says Hosea is talking about. If we turn to First Peter 2, verses 1 to 10, When Peter says, listen, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he says, not only that, but the hope at the end of Hosea 1 is about you. He says, once you are not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God fulfills his promises. First message of hope in Hosea was that a change is going to come. A change that would defy logic because everything around said the opposite. The change did come, brothers and sisters, in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God redeems us, He reunites us, and He reverses our heart condition such that we can serve him together with joy. He has put us here to be a church that reflects this reversal for the world to see, to be a church that lives out the implications of our confession, that even though we might have a preferred camp where brothers and sisters who are united in love and share in each other's gifts and graces, not because we got a mutual attraction, but because we got one head, one head, one king reigning and ruling over us. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're the change agent, that you're the one. he is not to content to let us dwell in darkness, but you have brought us into your marvelous light. We, Rejoice in you, Lord, because we are those who once were not a people, but now we are your people. And we were are those who once who had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy in Christ. Would you, Lord, by your great power and grace, work in us for that kind of love that says to the world, there is a family reunion going on in this church. All to the glory and praise of the one head who rules over us, Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.